0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we would see a glimpse of what your Son has done on our behalf. And I pray that our hearts will be full of thankfulness. Amen. This question will sound familiar to the men who've been coming to the Friday midday Bible study. But I frequently, when I approach a text in the Scripture, stop and ask the question, why was this written for its original audience? And why has it been preserved for us? The questions assume that the Spirit overshadowed the work of writing and protected the Scriptures through the ages. But the question is, under the guidance of the Spirit, why did the original audience need to hear this? And why have we been given it? After all, not everything that could have been written was actually written down. John says that explicitly at the end of the gospel, that if everything that Jesus said and did were written down, the world couldn't contain all the books. Not everything that happened was written down. And also, not everything that was written down was preserved by the Holy Spirit. That's actually startling. But Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians, not two. And he wrote another to the church at Laodicea that we don't have. Why did the Holy Spirit give us what he has given us? Why are these things offered to us? So when you begin to ask those questions, the two, why was it written down under the guidance of the Spirit for the first audience? And why was it written for us? We can begin to see things at play that make sense of why different gospel authors chose different moments in Jesus' life to highlight So, for example, Matthew, who's writing primarily to the Jews, goes to great lengths to point out the moments that show Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It makes sense that Matthew alone records the full Sermon on the Mount where we see Jesus as the new Moses, sitting on a mountain, delivering the law of God. This is Matthew's point because he's writing to Jews. Luke, on the other hand, wrote Luke and Acts to an aristocratic Roman. It's a very different audience. A Roman named or nicknamed Theophilus. And he picks and chooses the parts of Jesus' life, ministry, and teaching to speak directly to this aristocratic Roman about the faith. He's got a purpose in mind. Think about the things that we've heard in the last few weeks. Teachings on giving away our wealth and radical generosity. That takes on new light when you realize that the man receiving these books was a wealthy Gentile. He would have been startled to hear this sort of teaching. Teachings on servanthood. This would have been startling for an aristocrat. You think about the way that Luke opens the narrative. He gives this narrative to a powerful Gentile man. And he opens the story with a powerless Jewish woman. Mary. He opens the story with her singing a song that we call the Magnificat, that's all about fortunes being reversed, the proud being laid low and the humble exalted, the rich being made poor and the poor made rich. If you were a wealthy, powerful Gentile, reading the story of this powerless Jewish woman singing these stories would have been very arresting. Matthew, on the other hand, because he's writing to Jews, doesn't start with Mary, he starts with Joseph a righteous Jewish man, somebody they would have understood and wanted to be like. My point is, with these different audiences, we begin to see what the Spirit was doing, what needed to be communicated, and we begin to understand why certain passages make it into certain Gospels and not others. And then from that, we step back and we say, and why is the Spirit given them to us? I open this way because this particular story in Luke 17 only shows up in Luke. He had a point. What was he hoping that Theophilus, this aristocratic Roman, would hear? We can run through the things that are fairly self-evident, like the fact that it's a non-Jew who ends up in the rites with Jesus in this story, communicating clearly to his Roman audience that you don't have to be a Jew to be on the inside. By the way, that's a major theme for Luke and Luke-Acts. And the reason why it's a major theme is because he's writing to the non-Jewish world, showing that you don't have to be a Jew to be on the inside. Another thing that's evident in this passage is that Jesus cares deeply about the poor and the outcasts. You say, so what? Of course he does. We know that. But take yourself back to the age of the Rome. Make yourself an aristocratic Roman. The Jews knew that you were supposed to care for the poor and the outcast. They needed to be reminded of it plenty of times, but they knew it. It was in their own scriptures and their own prophets had said it. But for a Roman, the idea that I would care for a leprous outcast, no way. There was no way that I would dirty myself by getting close to that person. And it begins to make sense why Luke is emphasizing this story to a man who would not have taken for granted the idea that you should have compassion on a sick person who's in rags on the edge of a town. Another thing that's evident in this story that Luke is emphasizing over and over and over in Luke and Acts for the sake of Theophilus is that we're saved through faith in Jesus. Now again, we take this one for granted, right? Right? But we step back and we imagine ourselves as the recipient of these texts. And it becomes incredibly important that Luke pound this point over and over and over. Y'all may look at this story and say, wait a minute, where does it say that he was saved through faith? It's indirect. You have ten people who cry for mercy, right? And all ten are cleansed. That's the word used. And then one, as they're walking, sees that he's been healed, a different word used. And so he goes back and falls at the feet of Jesus, worshiping God, giving thanks to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, were not ten cleansed? And then he looks at this one, and he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Now glance at verse 19 in your order of service, and you may protest and say, no, it doesn't say that. It says your faith has made you well. And this is where I go, honestly, it's a clumsy translation. The verb used is the verb for salvation. And Jesus is very clearly drawing a distinction between the nine that were just healed and one that's been made well in the fullest sense, saved. And what's the difference between the two of them? His faith. Your faith has made you truly well, your faith has saved you. Luke is super concerned throughout Luke and Acts with showing Theophilus that it's not enough to be drawn to Jesus. Think about the rich young ruler showing up drawn to Jesus. He's magnetic. I want to be close to him. I want him to tell me how to live. But when Jesus challenges him, he walks away. It's not enough to be drawn to him. Here we see in the story that it's not even enough to see his mercy, to experience his mercy. The question is, do you have faith? We hear later in Acts, him telling to Theophilus, again, it's not even enough to initially believe in him. There's a magician named Simon Magus who believes in Jesus, but he doesn't have lasting faith, and he turns out trying to buy the apostles' authority with money. Throughout Luke and Acts, Luke is poking at this point, saying, do you have true faith? Do you have steadfast faith? Do you have lasting faith? It's not enough to be drawn. It's not even enough to believe for a moment. And it's not even enough to experience his mercy. Do you have faith? And you ask yourself, why would he have been challenging this Roman aristocrat with that question over and over? Probably because he was worried about the man. He was concerned that his faith might, not, might be that superficial type that slid away. What are other things that the- Theophilus will have, would have heard? One that I think that's fascinating that we just we're just totally disinterested in but would have been really important for Theophilus is where are you supposed to worship? This is where we get into the fairly obscure in this passage, but just follow me for a second. It's not complicated. Where are you supposed to worship? This was a live question in the ancient world. You didn't worship wherever you were. You didn't pray wherever you are. We take for granted this idea that you can be anywhere you want to be and you can pray there. You can enter into the sanctuary of your own heart and you can pray there. But that's not the way the ancient world thought. If you want to worship a God, you go to that God's temple. Very specifically, if you want to go to the worship, the true God, you go to that God's temple in Jerusalem. The reason why you go to the temple is because the temple is the juncture of heaven and earth. It's where heaven and earth come together and it's where God's presence is most effectively. It's in a temple that you actually encounter God and it's in the temple that you encounter the God. You remember the dialogue that Jesus has with the woman at the well in Samaria? What's one of her questions? You all say it's in Jerusalem that you worship. We say on Mount Gerizim, which one is it? Never in her thinking is the thought that I can worship anywhere that I want to be. It's at the temple that you encounter the presence of God, and therefore it's at the temple that you worship and pray. And it's at that temple where you're guided in worship by God's agent, his priest, his mediator. Because it's at the temple where God's presence comes closest to earth, the overlap of heaven and earth in the temple. That's the backdrop. That's the way they thought. And so when Jesus says to these men, go show yourselves to the priests at the temple, he's saying, go to God's agent, be declared fit for worship, and encounter God there. That's what's wrapped up in this command. And what does leper number 10 do? It's so beautiful. He goes to the feet of Jesus, the true temple. The true place where heaven and earth overlap, the true place where someone might encounter God, where someone might see him face to face, the true place where we're supposed to be worshiping, because it's the place where God's presence is in its fullness and not just in the way that it was in the temple, but in all of its glory. The overlap of heaven and earth and the man who is also God, Jesus Christ himself. It's stunning and it's beautiful. And he clearly see Luke demonstrating to Theophilus. And by the way, it doesn't end here. Jump forward to Acts 7. He wrote these two books to the same man. And in Acts 7, he records Stephen's speech right before he's stoned. And Stephen's speech over and over and over is on this very question. Where do we worship? Where do we worship? And the point that Luke is saying over and over and over is at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. Because he is the true temple. He's where heaven and earth overlap. He's where you see the presence of God. And what we learn from the writer to Hebrews, he is the high priest himself. All of it comes together in him. Theophilus would have got that. Because that question of where do we worship is live in that era. And when you see this leper turning back after the command, go to the temple, and he goes to Jesus' feet themselves, That's the point where you say, oh, he gets it, that Jesus is the place where you encounter God. Another thing that Theophilus would have heard is that faith in action looks like Thanksgiving. This is important. Faith in action looks like Thanksgiving. Jesus looked at this leper and he said to him, your faith has saved you we step back and we say, what had that man done? He'd given thanks. Faith in action looks like thanksgiving. Or flip it around, thanksgiving is faith in action. This might seem strange. And it might be something that y'all have never really considered. My hunch is that we think far too little of thanksgiving that we pay attention to it far too little. It's more important than we realize. It is what our faith looks like in action. The reason why it is what our faith looks like in action, because true thanksgiving before God assumes that we recognize who he is. It also assumes that we know our own selves, our own need, our own emptiness. It also assumes that we know what he's done for us. And it assumes that we responded to the fact that he's filled our need, responded in trust and joy. You see, thanksgiving is the place where what we say about God, what we claim to be about, believe about God, actually gets revealed. If a person doesn't give thanks... That indicates the fact that that person does not actually recognize that God has blessed them, filled their needs. It reveals a person who believes they can solve all their own problems. If a person does not give thanks, it reveals a person who thinks that they can be God over their own life. Thanksgiving is an act of humility. Because in Thanksgiving, we actually bend the knee and say, you gave me something I could not give for myself. You see this in Romans 1, where Paul's talking about the descent of humanity into sin and idolatry. And he says of mankind as a whole, even though they could see who God was through creation, they refused to acknowledge him and give thanks. Thanksgiving is more important than we realize. My father at one point called it the, contin- the continental divide of the human soul, the breakpoint On the one side, those who bend the knee and thank God are engaging in faith, and on the other ones, those who refuse to thank are actually rejecting faith itself. Luke, if we hear that, think about about what Luke is saying to Theophilus. He's speaking to an aristocrat, the sort of person, whether you're talking about Rome or America or medieval England We're talking about Victorian England or France. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. The people with wealth, the people with status, are the people who have a hard time oftentimes with that because they tend to believe, I earned this for myself. I deserve it. Do you not see all that I've done with my life? Of course, a poor person can feel that same way, but it's certainly a stronger temptation for those with status. And Luke is looking at this Roman aristocrat and saying to him, do you recognize that everything that you have is a gift? Do you recognize that it all comes from Jesus, not your own strength? Paul's blunt with this in Corinthians. We hear it all over the Bible in various places. What do you have that wasn't a gift? An old Bible school teacher of mine, was when I was at Bible school in Germany, it used to say very simply that God's greatest saints are his greatest receivers. That everything that we have worth having is a gift that's been given. And Thanksgiving sees that, acknowledges it, and rejoices in the God who would give to us. These are all things Theophilus would have heard. So then the second question, why did the Spirit give this to us? What is it that we need to hear in this? And in a certain sense, I could go anywhere I wanted with any one of these points. And my guess is some of y'all probably heard one of them and went, that one I should probably hang on to. And I would encourage y'all to hang on to the ones that were something that jarred you something new. But I actually want to just spend our last couple of minutes dwelling a little bit longer on that last point. That Thanksgiving is faith in action. We have a tendency, like I said, just to think about thanksgiving as good manners, a means of being polite. And it certainly is good manners. It certainly is a means of being polite. But if that's all we think about thanksgiving, we are indeed missing the much deeper reality. Like I said, it is faith in action. It's not the only thing that is faith in action. If you glance at Psalm 50, it's a beautiful psalm about obedience And salvation and thanksgiving, you could sort of pull Psalm 50 apart and realize that faith in action can look like a variety of things. One of the major ones that Psalm 50 says that looks faith in action is crying on God for salvation. This is faith in action, saying, I can't do it. I need your help. Another one that Psalm 50 highlights is simply obeying God. Faith in action seeks to follow God. Another one that you see in Psalm 50 is that faith in action is worshiping him, adoring him. But one of the ones that Psalm 50 comes back to over and over is that faith in action indeed is thanksgiving. My point in bringing up Psalm 50 is that Luke isn't getting this thought out of his own head. It's all throughout the scriptures, and you cannot... I cannot have faith in God and refuse thanksgiving any more than I can have faith in God and refuse to cry on him for salvation. Both of them are central movements of the thing that is faith. I want to dwell on this as we close, really because, well, for a couple of simple reasons. I want to dwell on this just simply for the reality that life is at times hard. Life is at times hard, right? Life is lonely. Life can be full of grief and difficulty. And the second reason that sort of comes in with that fact that life is hard is the fact that it can actually be really difficult to continue in the faith when life is difficult. It can be hard to hang on to the faith when life is hard. My guess is many of y'all have felt moments where you've thought, my faith Feels thin and ready to break at this moment. How can I hang on? It feels so fragile, like it all could fall apart. Those moments where you say, perhaps I'm just making this all up. Those moments where, because of the difficulty of life, it's very easy for our faith to enter into a place of being very, very vulnerable and very weak. That's the reality. My point in bringing that up in conjunction with this passage is the very simple question. Are you returning to the Lord in thanksgiving? Are you returning to the Lord in thanksgiving? In those moments of fragility where your faith feels terrifically weak, are you looking back to see what he has done in your life, remembering his healing, remembering the forgiveness you've received, Remembering his blessing and his presence, and in those moments of fragility, reminding yourselves of how he has been present and thanking him for that. By the way, this isn't a Stephen Breedlove thought. This is the basic pattern of the Psalms in times of difficulty. The psalmist confronts a hard situation, and what do they do? They remember when God has shown up in the past, and they thank him for those moments when we're face-to-face with things that look like they would fracture our faith, do you say to the Lord, yet you have proven yourself to me, and I thank you for that? Do you look at your family and see in them the way that God has blessed you? Do you look at the fact that he has relieved you of the burden of certain sins and say, he has blessed me, and I thank him for that? My point of this is, is that in those moments of weakness and fragility of faith, if we forget that Thanksgiving is one of the key movements of faith, we forget one of the primary exercises that will actually strengthen our faith. I doubt that life was easy for that Samaritan leper after this moment. It's easy to go, look, he's healed. It's all good. But what if he's been outcast for 10 years? What if he's got no home left? What if he's got no job? The Caesar's chariot plant has moved on and filled his position. And he goes back to town with nothing to do and no money. It's easy to think I alone am experiencing this difficulty or this dark season. The point of all this, those moments are common to all. And in those moments, if we turn and come back to the Lord, our faith is strengthened. He meets us where we are. So my encouragement to you all this morning is be people with me. Let us be people. Let this be our prayer that when we feel fragile and weak, by the grace of the Lord, we remember what he's done and we return to his feet in thanksgiving. Let that be what you do today. As you encounter the prayers, let your lips be full of thanksgiving. As you encounter the confession of sin, thank him for the things that he's forgiven you already. When you come to the table, hold out your hands in gratitude that he says to you, I want you feasting with me. Thank him for his love. Thank him for the fact that he has been present. Thank him for his mercy. Amen.